I was talking to my friend who goes to a different school, like only up the road, a boarding school. And they were like, we have no girls in our class. They have 20 boys and no girls. And I was like, how is that possible? There are hundreds of kids in that year and there are no girls. That seems a bit crazy. I was amazed. We speak about the STEM imbalance a lot. And obviously it's awful that it's there, but no one is speaking about this huge gap in economics and in business. And I was like, why on earth aren't they doing it? And they said, oh, well, there was one girl, but we bullied her out. They bullied her out. Like, Sorry, they bullied her out. What's going on? That is insane. I thought, I was like, they were like, oh yeah, we didn't really like her ideas. So we kind of were shooting her down all the time. I was like, oh my gosh. And wow. I just, I didn't understand how on earth this happened. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018, in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Joanna Baptista is an 18-year-old student from Oxford who has just completed her A-levels. With a passion for STEM and economics, she has founded three award-winning companies alongside running workshops, clubs and talks around the country. She is proudly presented to Princess Anne, was selected to participate in the Women to Women Leadership Programme in America, and has not one, but two TED Talks under her belt. At the most recent, she spoke of the importance of reverse mentoring. Jo was the recipient of the Women of the Future Young Star Award in 2017. A very proud advocate for feminism, girls in STEM, and young entrepreneurship, I met up with her at her family home in Oxford. So both my parents are Portuguese and they moved here to study just before I was born. So I was born in London. I went to the LIC nursery. So I always like to consider myself an alum of the school, even though that's really not true. And then I moved to Oxford when I was six and I started at a girls' school and I've been there ever since. I have a younger brother, he's 11, and uh, we live in Oxford in Summertown. And I just finished studying my A-levels, so I did economics, maths and computer science, which I really enjoy. On the side, I like to play ice hockey and field hockey. Anything with the word hockey in it, I'll play. Ice hockey? (laughs) Yeah. That's a bit different. Well, honestly, it started with my brother first. He started a year or two before me. I used to figure skate and then I stopped. And then he started ice hockey. And then my dad was like, come, come, but I'm a very shy person although mm. people always say oh, how can you possibly be shy like you sound <laughs> so naturally like talkative but I was quite shy and I remember crying the first time I ever went and then crying the second time but after that I got really into it and really enjoyed it so. is it quite like argy-bargy because it's like yeah it's very aggressive, aggressive. Very aggressive. yeah I also, I had last year a problem with like glandular fever right which obviously means that you have like inflamed something or other I think it's kidneys but I could definitely be wrong and there's okay, definitely lots okay. of medical people so it's not really advisable to then go on um, yeah, an a, ice rink exactly they'd say uh, no physical contact sports and I'd be like ah, never mind <laughs> and play anyway but yeah I mean it is I was just saying it's hard to know where to start with you because you are pretty young and it sounds really patronising I don't no, mean no, it to no, sound no, patronising but you're 17? Just turned 18, Just turned but 18. I like to pretend that I'm still 17. But you've, you've achieved so much, <laughs> haven't you? I mean, is there anything in particular that stands out for you on a personal level or anything you're particularly proud of? Because you've started three businesses. Yeah, the key words have started. Okay. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> but even so, yeah, yeah, yeah. tell us a bit more about your entrepreneur entrepreneurial background yeah so I remember when I was really young everyone always says when you write your personal statement never start with since a very young age I've always wanted to blah 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 but I guess for me it was that when I was young I used to sell my old toys in the school playground really so I really took the one man's trash as another man's (laughs) treasure approach I'd sell like key rings and old toys and stuff or even before then you know you when you trade like go-go's or playing cards mm. so I was always that person in the, the business in the 
training stuff. I also sold my mum's marmalade. I created an online website. What, what made you want to do that? Because that's quite an unusual thing for a child to want to do, isn't it? Be a salesperson, essentially. Yeah. I've got something that you might be interested in. Come have a look. How, what made you like that, do you think? I don't really... I guess for me, it's always like, I identify somewhere where there's a gap. Or something like, I have lots of toys, my parents want to throw it away. But then I'm like, you know what? I guess when you're younger as well, you have less less boundaries and you're less afraid. So now I would never go and take my toys to school and go, mm. who wants to buy an old keyboard or something? But when you're young, you don't really notice that there's like social boundaries or mm. whatever. And I think I just, sometimes it was just looking at something and thinking, you know, there's an opportunity here. Or in the case, my mum would make jams and I would say, oh, well, we're not going to be able to keep all 20 jars. I want some money to buy a new toy that I want. So I'd set my sights on something that I really wanted. Sometimes it was like a new scooter. And then I would say, well, you know what? I've got some spare things hanging around and my friends have some spare cash. And it's it's a swap, you know? So they get what they want and I get what I want. And you weren't afraid of rejection or people saying, what are you doing? Why are you that? Or like, like you say, as a child, there is this fearlessness that we lose a little bit or it gets beaten out of us as we get older but that for you you were just like unabashedly here I am <laughs> I've got something you want are you interested I guess it's definitely something that has probably deteriorated as I got mm. older now I'm older I'd say I'm a lot more afraid especially of what people think of me or a failure which I know is something that is important and part of the journey but it's still human to be afraid of it but when I was younger I think I just had this like thing like I'm doing the right thing. There is no reason why anyone would doubt what I'm doing. Obviously, they want to buy my toys. What's wrong with that? You know, you see people in the shop selling their things, so why can't I do the same? Mm. But there was... I did receive comment, you know. Some of my friends would sometimes... I always remember... Would always have charity fates at school as well. And whenever it was my store for the charity fate, they would go, oh, Joe's raising money for the Joe charity because she keeps all the money herself because she likes making money, blah, blah, blah. And it's not a complete lie. I do like making money. But it also hurt that people didn't think that I could have, like, a human or a good side. Mm. They always, I suppose people associate, you know, business person, ruthless, making money with someone who has no compassion. And I guess a part of me likes that busy, like, sales, making money, the business entrepreneurship side. But part of me is also very much social and likes to help people and likes to give and be kind. And that's something that sometimes people don't bridge or at least people when I was younger didn't connect. So how do you go from selling your toys and selling jam to starting up your own companies and tell us more about the companies what they do and what you were trying to achieve with them and what you have achieved with them. Sure so the first one that really kick-started everything I guess was I went to this um, competition which was at Oxford Brookes University and it was aimed at adults and sort of university graduates and my mum was working there at the time and she said, oh, why don't you just go and sit in the, in the talk? Just listen. Anyway, long story short, we ended up taking part in the competition. It was me and the daughter of another, of another what was, woman. What was the competition? It was called um, Tech Weekender. It was run by a local graphics design company called White October. And yeah, it was me and this one other girl who I'd gone to coding camps once with and her mother was taking part in the competition coincidentally, so her daughter came along. Okay. And we worked together on this attachment to a toothbrush, um, which aims to improve the brushing of young people by providing incentives. So you'd brush well, you'd receive a cinema ticket for free. And it was based off the statistic that two thirds of eight year olds show sign of tooth decay or something staggering like that. We built that and then we just presented, you know, with like two 12-year-olds like having a bit of fun with this super technical product that we didn't really understand how it worked properly. And we ended up winning. And you're like, right, now what? <laughs> and the prize for the competition was to go and pitch to real investors at, I think it was Pitch Fest or something. Of that like Dragon's Den. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It felt like that. You had all of these like 40, 50-year-old proper established businesses, yeah. space buggies, I remember, pitching and how, how old were you at the time 12 oh my 12. goodness so you're standing in the room about 12 I thought of course I'm going to get loads of investment I took it really seriously I had a great presentation I was expecting people to be pitching like 10,000 pounds at me you know obviously it didn't quite work out that way but the point was is that it forced us to go from something where we were just having a little bit of fun just like I'd been doing in the school playground to actually being like right this is serious you have proper opportunity to pitch you're being thrown in right at the deep end this is what real professional careers people spend their life trying mm -hmm. to get 
and you've got this opportunity and it really I suppose it translated the world from this is a bit of fun that I can do in school to you know what you're 12 but it doesn't matter you can start properly at any time and you're never too young to be put in front of investors or do something proper mm. so that was sort of the first that was what made the transition really for me between fun and serious how did you do <laughs> well we ended up getting a lot of good contacts we were invited to several other events and there are some people I still keep in touch with who said very much we'd invest in you you know, in the future, and maybe you're not 12 and don't really know how the product works. Are they surprised to see you? Are they surprised to see a 12-year-old girl being there and pitching them a product and obviously pretty confident and <laughs> assured? Were they quite surprised? I think so. I think people... I think I wasn't surprised. I felt like I was entitled to be there. That was my place. Why wouldn't a 12-year-old be there? That's really refreshing, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but obviously for them it was quite different and a shock. Like, we were at least 20 years younger than the next group. But we did get some really great connections. We then were suggested the O2 Think Big, which do grants for young people doing projects involving tech to make the world a better place. So we got grants from that, which was amazing. Mm. And then we also got connected to these labs in Warwick called Catapult, which are funded by the European Union, although who knows what's going to happen <laughs> with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, yes. pre-Brexit, we worked with this company, which was funded by the European Union, who made us 3D prototypes and jetted, jet mould, injection mould, something like that. These cases for our toothbrushes and built the programme and built mock-ups. And it was like so cool that these people believed in us. We were 12 years old and they yeah. were using their resources on us. And it was, from our perspective, such a big learning experience to have to sit in board meetings to talk, to see the technology being made, to see the 3D printing years before many of my friends would ever see what a 3D printer was, which is now, you know, commonplace. Everyone seen or at least knows what a 3D printer is. Do you think you appreciated that at the time, that you were being exposed to details and information and experiences and meetings that were probably decades before your time, stereotypically? Yeah. Do you think you appreciated that at the time? And did they, did they treat you differently? Did they, were they speaking to you differently? Or? Um... Looking back on it, at least from my perspective as a whatever-year-old, it didn't feel like they were treating me differently. But at least I think I've always been somewhat techie. So going into that room and seeing all the different like processor bits or seeing where they inkjet, they injection mould print things was so cool to me that it wasn't so much as like a, you know what, this is something you should be doing in 20 years' time. Mm. Appreciate it now while you have the chance. It was more like... This is so cool. I'm in a world of tech that none of my friends see. I'm going to go back and brag to them that I've seen this cool piece of technology. So really for me it was just about the excitement rather than appreciating that it was part of a story that usually yeah. you don't live out until you're a lot older. And you are a huge advocate for feminism and girls in STEM. It would be refreshing to hear what you feel the main issues and challenges in each of these areas are and how you'd potentially like to see them addressed as well. Yeah, so... I think the main problem with getting more girls into STEM, for example, is that sometimes girls aren't 100% sure what they want to do yet when they're younger and sort of, they don't necessarily get told, go do this career or go do that career, but they're sort of fielded there, maybe based on what the other girls are doing or they don't want to be the only girl in the class or maybe they're strong enough to be that voice in the classroom, but they can get shot down. Or if the boys are rowdy, whatever, it can be hard to feel that that's your place. And I think sometimes they get shooed away from what they really want to do. And they'll find something else that they're great at and they love, but they haven't been offered the chance to explore it in a safe or yeah. even way. For example, I went to girls' school my whole life. And for me, I was amazed that there was not equal representation in STEM. Because at my school, girls were happy to pursue STEM subjects. The most popular A-level in our school was maths, right. followed by the sciences. It wasn't any of the others. That's really interesting. Yeah, so for me, it seemed extraordinary that girls didn't want to do this. And so what sets, I guess, my school from the others was maybe that here, everyone didn't have to be scared, didn't feel like they had to put on a face or become someone that was expected of them because they could do what they wanted. What differentiates your school then, would you say? Because I would argue, I mean, obviously I'm quite a bit older than you, <laughs> but when I was at school, I 
well, we considered, and maybe I considered a bit as well, that STEM subjects weren't as sexy or as interesting <laughs> or as, I don't want to talk about maths and science, but also, is it a boy-girl thing? Like, because I went to a mixed school, mm-hmm. and arguably, yeah, you probably would say that there were more men that were doing the maths and sciences than the women were, but do you think having been brought up, essentially, in, in an all-girls situation and not necessarily knowing a, a mixed environment, that there were no boundaries and no barriers and the girls and yourself just pursued what it was that you were passionate about, unabashedly. Do you think there's that? I think there were less stereotypes because in our school you were taught, do whatever you want. If there's 20 girls doing maths, then why wouldn't you do maths or whatever you wanted to do? So I think that there can sometimes be these stereotypes in other schools where you see three years above you, the classroom is five boys, two girls, and you're like, oh, I see. But also I think it's more, it's not necessarily to do with STEM itself and more to do with a girl's confidence and knowledge of them, what they want to do, who they want to be. And sometimes if people aren't too sure or they're not confident enough in themselves to take risks or to be in that pressurised situation where they can be in the minority, they can sometimes take, not necessarily a safe route, mm. but one that they know that they'll you know somewhat enjoy, it's comfortable, and they know at the end they'll have had a relatively good time and they'll have the qualifications that they need. Yeah. So I think that perhaps it's not necessarily a boy-girl thing or you pick this subject because it's you know the sexiest or what your parents expect of mm. you. It's more like not being 100% sure in yourself and feeling like that's the safest or most comfortable option. How do, we, how do we improve that? For me, I think it's all about the confidence that we give girls. The more people we show that believe in them. So a lot of what I do is I'll go around schools and I'll give talks on computer science or on safety or on entrepreneurship. And more so than talking to the room, it's about connecting to those individual voices mm-hmm. and saying, you know what? You do you, you do whatever you want to do because I believe in you and you can look at all these role models, look at these people and if they can do it, you can too and that's sometimes what these big state schools underfunded can lack the resources to be able to touch those individual people and say this is your place if you want it to be. And how responsive have you found the pupils and the teachers as well when you go into schools and you talk to them about what you do? I guess it can sometimes be hard to see the long term of it because you're only there for a short snapshot. But there are so many stories of girls which have really touched me personally. You know, I'll see myself in them as a younger version or I'll talk to them and suddenly they'll go from the quiet girl in the corner to someone really excitedly chatting. Or, you know, you'll be in the room and there will be a confident girl who isn't afraid to put her hand up and talk or whatever. And those are the ones which you say, you know what, you're being the role model for other girls around you which is really amazing to see. But I think girls take quickly to other girls and sometimes they just need to be shown a path and shown that it's an option for them to consider it. But for example, what I want to study at university is economics and management. So business, again, along this entrepreneurship lines. And for me, I was like, I always knew that it wasn't 100% balanced, but I thought, you know what, it's pretty equal. I love The Apprentice, right? Mm-hmm. On there, they always start with the same number of boys and girls. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Yeah. So then I was talking to my friend who goes to a different school, like only up the road, a boarding school. And they were like, we have no girls in our class. There are 20 boys and no girls. And I was like, how is that possible? There are hundreds of kids in that year and there are no girls. That seems a bit crazy. I was amazed. We speak about the STEM imbalance a lot and obviously it's awful that it's there but no one is speaking about this huge gap in economics and in business and I was like why on earth aren't they doing it and they said oh well there was one girl but we bullied her out they bullied her I out like, sorry they bullied her out what's going on that was insane I thought I was like they were like oh yeah we didn't really like her ideas so we kind of were shooting her down all the time I was like oh my gosh and wow. I just I didn't understand how on earth this happened? For me, I'd say I'm quite like, a confident, I'm not afraid to speak my mind. But if I was the only girl in the class and I was being constantly shot down by 20 boys, I would have left there. And it's awful that people can have the guts to pursue what they really want to, but then find that they can't because they're just 
everything is in their way and stopping them. And the environment that they've chosen to exactly. do it in is even kind of rejecting them. Exactly. So you've maybe been in two minds in the first instance. You've actually got physically got in there. Yeah. And they're like, no, sorry, we don't want you. Yeah, and then think about all the other girls who are coming up and see that there was a group of 20 guys yeah. and one girl and the girl got shot at. And that is just what sets them up to then not do it and so makes really, the cycle yeah, worse. Really dangerous precedent to set. Exactly. Your Woman of the Future Award aside, yeah. <laughs> you've also been recognised as a finalist in the Rising Star category of the Every Woman FDM Women mm. Technology Awards in 2016. You've also presented to Princess Anne, oh, yeah. <laughs> and you've delivered a TED Talk. Mm-hmm. Is, is that all correct? It's two now, but yes. Two TED Talks? <laughs> what did you do your TED Talks on? Can you explain what a TED Talk is, if people don't know, yeah, and also sure. what you spoke about? So a TED Talk is essentially a short, inspiring talk aimed to educate people around, I think it's technology, education and design. And they're talks that take place all around the world by a huge range of people. Anyone who has a story or a message to tell can have that platform. And it's all about educating people. They're free online. We watch them in school as part of resources. You know, you have huge names doing them and then also small tiddly names like me. But the first one I did, I did again at Oxford Brooks. Okay. Um, and it was just a small room, like probably 100 people. And I spoke a lot about, you know, my journey and how other people can help the youth get involved. Because, especially in entrepreneurship, as well as there being a gender barrier, a race barrier, there is very much also an age barrier. Or at least they can find it harder to be taken seriously or get resources. So it was all about how we can encourage the more youth to be involved, especially on social issues and social entrepreneurship, which is what I like to identify myself as now and mm. work towards. My second TED talk was, oh, it was crazy. It was like 2,000 people wow, in goodness. Rome. In Rome? Yes, they, f- they flew us out from all over the world to Rome. It was huge. How do you get involved with TED Talks? Is it something you pitch an idea or you're part of a group of people that have an idea or how does it work? So. I guess this is where this sort of like my I don't really care what people think of me in some ways approach. So I care a lot about what people think of me in school, blah, blah, mm. blah. But I literally messaged the organisers on Facebook being like, hi, <laughs> I have an idea and I think I'd be great to do a TED Talk. Um, no, mate, I love that you have this attitude. It's so I, <laughs> refreshing. I think it's an attitude that lots, especially women, are scared to take. We often hear about, you know, they won't apply for jobs unless they are overqualified. Yeah. Whether as men are happy to go for it when they're it's, underqualified. It's a quality that not many women nurture, is yeah, it? Really? It's really hard. And it's definitely not something that I've perfected in all areas. But you know, sometimes it's just doing it once, realizing that everything goes okay, and then saying, you know what, okay, I can do this again in the future. So messaging them on Facebook, getting them to be like, oh, come in and talk to us, and then getting to see the talk, told me that, you know what, this is a success, this is a tick. I've messaged them, I've gone out of my comfort zone, I've, you know, told them, you know what, I think I'd be great. They wouldn't have otherwise contacted me or knew about me, ever. Mm. But when you have, like, that one success, it's like, it gives you a bit more confidence, and then each time you build it up. And what happens, I think, a lot of the time is that women will have a, a setback, and then they'll say, I don't know where to go from here. Yeah. I'm scared, like, I've, I don't want to fail again. How do, you, how do you deal with rejection or failure? Um, it's definitely really hard. I think we know that failure is important to succeed, but in the moment, it doesn't make failure any easier. And I think the most important thing to learn is to be mature about failure and accept that it hurts Mm. and accept that, you know what, at this time, I've done something, it's not worked out, it's been a setback. I'm not in the same place I was before. I've lost a little bit of confidence and I'm upset. And you say, that's okay. I'm allowed to be upset and I'm allowed to accept that things haven't gone my way, but let's work on that so that next time it's a bit easier. And every time you fail, you develop a sort of a tougher skin, which is like, you know, next time I fail, I'll be able to take it easier and I'll be able to learn. So sometimes it's not even about the failure paving the path to success. Like you Mm -hmm. fail and you see, this is what I should have done. Sometimes it's about developing that tough skin where you're less afraid to fail in the future. So you're willing to take more risks because you know if you fail, it's okay, and you know how to bounce back from that. So it's about being more open to failing and being confident that you can get back up, I think. I wish I had your mindset. And I, was your, I genuinely, again, don't want to sound patronising, but it's so, it's so great to hear you talk like that. 
take us back to Rome. Oh yes, of course. Uh, do you find these things intimidating, or do you literally just take them in your stride? Just two thousand people, did you say? Yeah, it was it was crazy. So they actually found me because I was speaking at a conference and I was on the stage, and she came up to me afterwards and like, here's my business card. Let's talk. And that room was 4,000 people. Wow. But it was five girls sat around having little chats. It didn't feel like 4,000 people, right? Whether it is one was me alone on a stage. 2,000 people looking at me, plus the live stream, and all the pressure that it was a TED talk and me being like, right. Mm. It was definitely nerve-wracking, but I've always found myself quite in my element talking because sometimes... At least as a young person, it can really be hard to find people who want to listen to your voice. And there you have everyone wanting to listen to you. And even if you're scared, I think the thing I always told myself was, they want you to succeed. They want to hear your talk. They don't want to see you fail and not remember your lines and everything. Especially the organisers, they have confidence in you to put you on that stage. Mm. So, you know, prove your worth and do it for the other people who don't have that voice yet. Everyone else was established amazing people from all around the world with great careers and I was felt like I was there representing the youth and young people from England or maybe Portuguese and my parents mm. heritage or whatever and I felt like I was there to represent that group of people and what were, we, what were you talking about that was all about um, reverse mentoring about the yeah. importance of the youth learning from those who are already established in careers but also the other way around and why it can be really beneficial for slightly older generations to learn from the youth and also in other applications, so in politics and think tanks or perhaps celebrating young entrepreneurs and social Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, which was great. It seemed that it really impacted people, which was really touching to see and to have so many people come up to me afterwards and be like, I had one guy who was was crying for like 10, 15 minutes telling me um, all about his story and how it really meant something to him to hear me on that stage today and that was really touching or even if it was just the random person you know asking for a selfie you know for a 17 year old you feel like quite a celebrity yeah, in that superstar. moment yeah absolutely so it felt that felt really good was it a bit of an anti-climax when you came home or you were still <laughs> riding that high no, honestly i'm sure you've got a lot of other irons in the fire but that must have been like it was huge amazing. and it was a month before my a-levels so I did it in May oh, wow. and then set my exams at the end of May, two, week, two three weeks later. How did you manage that? Oh, How did you, did genuinely, because obviously A-levels are stressful enough on their own. Oh, yeah. And you just chucked in flying to Italy to deliver a... I think for me, talk. it honestly keeps me sane. I love the side where I can write talks or go to events and stuff and not have to think about A-levels for a second. So it was almost like I was doing my A-levels but at the same time, we're seeing what I could be doing after A-levels. Ooh. So, like, you know what? In a few months' time, I can dedicate more time to this. I can do more talks. I can be more present with these people. And also, it's a really nice way to take a non-guilty break because you're still educating yourself, learning, doing something good, but you're also taking time away from revising and A-levels. Mm. But you'd n- if you'd watched that talk, you would have never understood all the chaos that had gone on before. <laughs> Literally, that same week, on Tuesday or so, my parents were saying, don't go. It's too close to A-levels. You can't do it. We don't know enough about it. I don't want you to go to Rome on your own. Don't do it. You're going to have to cancel. But now looking back, I was like, imagine if I hadn't gone. And I hadn't gone, you know what? It's okay. I'll still be able to do my A-levels. And just taking that leap, I would have never had that amazing experience. Mm. So it was something that could have gone so differently. But thanks to everything falling into place or, you know, being like bold or saying A-levels are great, but I can also do this. And that also comes from the confidence in oneself that you can you can push yourself and you'll bounce back, right? But even on that day, I showed up to the rehearsal on the Friday. And they were like, so do you know your lines? I was like, uh... Well, they have an autocue. No, I was like, well, they're on the slides, you know? They're on the... I thought, on the they thought they did these things on autocue. They don't. Yeah, so wow. sometimes they do. Ah. But I was there expecting to have the whole presentation on the little yeah. screen at the bottom. And they go... I know you're supposed to know it off by heart. I was like, are you joking me? You're kidding. Oh my God. And my rehearsal slot was the one, the next slot. So I was like, right. So you had to memorise it. So I walked out of the room. I got up from the script on my phone. And I spent those 20, 30 minutes memorising every single line of the 15 minute presentation off by heart. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get on that stage and I'm going to know nothing. 
it was it was intense and it was scary. And then I got on that stage and I only slipped up once and I was like, that's remarkable. I learned a 15 minute presentation in 20 minutes. But then it was like, are you quite proud of yourself? You must have been I really was, proud I was yourself. quite chuffed of I myself. I would have been like, yes, come on. <laughs> but then when you get on the stage and the real thing, you're like, right, I learned this in 20 minutes the day before. Yeah. It's going to go wrong. Thankfully it didn't. But it was really a moment when I was like, why do I spend so many days learning my scripts? <laughs> <laughs> but also a moment of real pressure. Mm. And for me, being a 17 year old, where everyone else was proper adults, you know, established, I was in this huge auditorium presenting on a huge TEDx stage with loads of tech going around mm. me. So it can feel really scary and daunting, especially if someone's so young, you feel like you have to live up to expectations. Did, I was gonna say, did you feel like you had something to prove? Yeah, I felt like I was really, they'd taken a chance on me almost. And I had to prove that I was worthy of being there. Yeah. Or if the all these adults around me had heard me slip up 500 times, or it made me seem unprofessional, mm. that I hadn't learned my lines, then I know that they wouldn't trust the youth or young people or me in the future because they thought I hadn't been able to be mature. So it was more for you about what you were representing than actually yourself. So you were, like you just said, you were thinking more about what you were standing for. Yeah, I think it's absolutely both. So at first I was like, I'm going to make a fool of myself. But then when you think about it more, you're like, I'm not only going to make a fool of myself, but I'm going to make it seem as though young people can't be mature or worthy enough of like remembering to learn their lines mm. or replying to the email fast enough or being professional so for me it was not only about myself but also about the group of people that i was representing and what that stood for but yeah it was a real whirlwind of an experience that oh my gosh tell me more about your children's book oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when i was in year 12 so 16 um, myself and a group of friends got together to do this business competition young enterprise and we were bouncing back lots of ideas. Originally we wanted to make a water bottle, you know, but we didn't have a passion for that, right? So we sat down and we thought, what do we really care about? And what sprang to mind is that every single one of us came from a different background. We were all completely different, different ethnicities, different religions, different everything. We were all uh, different perspectives on life. And we thought, you know what, at one point or another, all of us had faced adversity or we'd faced discrimination because of who we were. And we all really cared that that wasn't the case in the future. And we also all really loved storytelling. Only one of the girls in that group actually took English as an A-level. But we all loved the idea of like our childhood reading stories, being in that imaginative world. So we got together and we created this series of children's picture books, which tackle social issues. And each one is a traditional fairy tale, say Rapunzel or Princess and the Frog. And we rewrite the endings to give them a modern twist yeah. and highlighting different um, diversity issues. For example, we tackle sexism, racism, homophobia, disability discrimination, everything that we think or we've, we started with things we personally experienced and then mm. branched out to other important issues we thought were underrepresented. And we just rewrote the stories in a way that is educational but also encourages a conversation without forcing it. So the story twists are very subtle, yeah. almost that if you read it, a young child might not even question it or second guess it. It just opens their mind a bit to a story which has a slightly different ending or different characters. But if parents want to open that conversation to, how is this book different to others you've read? Or yeah. what does this signify? They have that tool to be able to open that conversation in a way that is still accessible to young children, yeah, isn't too heavy because you don't want to overburden them with heavy issues when they're young, you know? Yeah, what ages were they aimed at? So they're aimed at sort of five to eight year olds. Okay. So they're very much picture books. We aim to have lots of difficult, slightly difficult language that it stretches them and yeah, educates them yeah. in that way as well. But it's all about, yeah, being open-minded and being aware of issues without having to be too heavy or know too much about them. Almost as if you're making a world that they don't know yeah. anything different of. And they were available to the country to yeah what, how did you distribute them so they're they're available on our online store and we had a short stint with them at blackwells which is quite fun oh, part of the competition good. they're available also internationally we have a few bookstores we have one in the netherlands and one in germany that's great and we ship obviously internationally as well and they're available as an ebook and an audiobook as well so yeah. the aim is very much to make it accessible to everyone so we don't want a hearing difficulty or perhaps if they're blind to stop them from being able to appreciate 
the story or if someone can't read or wants to listen to a story or something. So that's all available to them. It's also it's in seven languages. So there's plenty of variety. It's accessible to as many people as possible. We have like Chinese and Swedish and Portuguese really? and Spanish great. and all these other languages. Which was fun for us to write, but also... You wrote them in that language. Uh, yeah, so we'd find... I would write the Portuguese and the Spanish, then my friend would write the Swedish, another would write the Mandarin, and then if we didn't, we'd ask for help from a friend. So it's all very home and organic. All the illustrations so were lovely. done by a girl in our group as well. It's such a lovely thing to do. It was really fun, and more than that, it was almost like, you know, how many people could be reading the story in their language, or through the audiobook, or be seeing it in a store or collect it from us in a market. And that was almost the biggest thing for us, like creating the books are amazing. But when you see the people, when someone buys it, you know, they're taking it home and they're gonna have that, even if they throw it away in a few mm. years time. Some child has read our story. And that's like a really amazing feeling that takes a lot of time to wrap your head around. And it's a great thing about being an entrepreneur and mm. seeing something real come out of something that came from your head. It's interesting as well, you're talking about the themes of the stories. I did something similar. I wrote a little kids' book mm. on mental health. But it is like you say, you don't want to bombard mm. little. I'm not, not little people. Obviously, like five to eight year yeah. kids as they're starting school. They don't want to be bombarded with technical language. And there's, it's really hard as a parent or you know some of the caregiver to a child to know how to open up a conversation about mm -hmm. difficult subject matters. So if you can do that through something as simplistic as a story, like you say, like a, a fairy tale or something that's Absolutely. very well known, and you just have a slight twist in there which you say like subconsciously they probably don't even recognize but longer term there'll be an affiliation in their yeah, mind exactly. that they didn't realize was there so. absolutely and the great thing about using fairy tales is that everyone knows the story mm. and they're likely to have heard it before so it's not a new story or plot to wrap your head around it's very simple it's mm. you know beauty and the beast tell as old as time right everyone knows these and it's a chance for a parent to share their childhood with their children, but also do so in an educational way. But there are a lot of parents who are really afraid, or we'd have parents saying, oh, they're too young, they're too young. But it was a really important feedback for us to hear the parents worry, because parents want their children to be aware of all these issues, but they don't want them to feel, they're still their little babies, you know, they're sweet and innocent, and you don't want to put too heavy topics mm. in them too young. So for them, it was important that it was still a normal story but just open-ended, I guess. Yeah. Now, I have a question that I ask everyone that comes on this podcast. It's who or what would you say gave you your first big career break? But I don't want to assume this for you, <laughs> but I would imagine it is linked to the Women of the Future programme. Oh, absolutely. So could you t tell us more about how you got involved? It's actually through my school again, so they've been great. But my school mentioned this award to me, and they said, you know what, why not apply? I said, oh, great. So I looked on the website. I was like, the deadline is next week. Uh-oh. School. Can I have more, mm, more notes? <laughs> TED Talk and A-Levels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so you yeah. can understand that yeah. I do things very last minute. Yeah. But I was like, this looks amazing. So I applied to the awards and I got shortlisted, which was incredible. I remember getting the news and I was like, just getting off a bus in City Centre. I did like, you know, a little happy trot, <laughs> little happy dance jumping off the bus. I was like, woo! Anyone looking at you was like, okay. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, yeah. So then they're like, you can't tell anyone yet. And I was like, oh, I can't keep secrets. I'm so bad at keeping secrets. Anyway, so I went to their uh, networking event. And I remember I was so, I'm very, as I said, I'm very shy. So I stood in the corner of the room. You are not shy. That's what everyone says <laughs> when they know you. But in social situations when there's lots of people, I can be really shy to go up to people and talk mm. and chat. So I just stood in the corner of the room. And then someone from Women of the Future came over and just started talking to me. And we had this like amazing conversation, just asked how I was, what I was, you know, getting up to, um, what I thought of Women of the Future, just talked to me about my everyday life. And it stood for so much of what the Women of the Future is all about. It was about the kindness of her, sensing that I was kind of out of my depth and coming over and talking to me. And it also just made me so comfortable in Women of the Future and in everything surrounding it. And I was like, from that moment, I was like, I'm sold. Women of the Future is my life now, you know? <laughs> and then obviously we had the interviews, and you were in the same year as me, so 2017? Yeah, I, I was last 18? year, so 18. Oh, yeah, the one that's yeah, just gone. Yeah. Okay, so I'm a veteran now. Oh, that's it. So it's 2017. Uh, your stripes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm on second year, you know? Someone's now got the award after me. 
But, so I went to the awards and it was so amazing to meet people. And Pinky has this gift where she knows everything about everyone. And she will take you and say, I want you to meet this person. And you'll, she'll connect you and she'll just walk. And I'm like, I am so amazed. I don't know how she does it. I know. She has a, such a personal connection with everyone she meets. And she knows and cares about everyone in her several hundred, if not thousands, people yeah. network. And that really meant a lot to me that a lot of times for awards, you just sat there, you know, you win, you lose, you go up, you get a trophy, you clap for everyone, that's mm. it. You've got, had a nice dinner and a nice yeah, dress. Yeah, that's it. But women of the future is very different. And I always say this different because once you're in, you're in. And everyone cares for you. Even if it's other members in the network, they'll always be there to support you. So I did, um, I launched a business politics and economics conference. And I had women of the future members from Visa send over some merchandise to use. I had women of the future previous winners come and judge for the competition. I had advice from others. And it was just so amazing to see everyone come together. Even if they've never met you, they know that you're part of women of the future. So you stand for these common Mm. values. And it was just, it was such a pivotal moment for me. Not only did you get the nice awards, which is great, but the awards aren't just for the sake of the awards. They're for the sake of joining a community of people with the same values as you. And even if you don't win, you are still part of that community. And it's given me so much as well. Pinky gave me the opportunity through the US Embassy to be fully funded to go over to Boston last summer to take part in this Women Leadership Conference, which was so amazing and so life-changing as well. And, you know, she'll invite you to... What, so you talk about that. What happened there? Did you... You spent two weeks there, didn't you? Yeah, it was right? ten days. Okay. And, and it was people from all over the world. I mean, we had people from Nigeria, from um, Peru, from corners of Europe and America and all these countries all over the world. Wow. And it was a really humbling experience for me. I've been to America plenty of times, you know. It was still super exciting to go and board that plane. But there are people who would come from Chad or Nigeria or who'd come from places with under dictatorships mm. and you just see, oh my gosh, they're experiencing something for the first time in their lives. They live completely different lives. But they're your age, they're teenagers, they like the same things that you do. They appears, yeah. And they are leading completely different lives. And it was a really humbling moment for me. Especially the last day when everyone was going. And everyone is crying because you're leaving your friends. But sometimes you'd see them crying because they have to go back to such a different world. Mm. And you're like, I'll probably never see you again in my life. But you have changed the way that I see the world. And just going around and hugging these people from all across the world was a really touching moment. It's unlike any other summer camp that I'd ever done or entrepreneurship program that I'd done the year before in Boston in the same city but it's a completely different experience because what you're seeing is you're seeing people from all over the world sharing common themes and love and things that they care about and then going off to live their separate lives but your life has been changed changes your perspective absolutely it was really amazing Okay, I have quick fire questions. I always say quick fire and they are never quick fire, but let's go for it. What would you describe as your greatest success? Oh, oh, my greatest success. I think my greatest success isn't actually a defining event or something that happened because, you know, it's so cool to say I spoke at Facebook or I met Princess Anne, you know. But I think my biggest success was realizing that my success was not the only success. So you can have all these achievements on your own and that's wonderful and that good for you. But that's not the only important success. And helping others achieve and being kind to them and raising them and helping them and being that hand to raise them when you're a step up is perhaps my biggest success in realizing that that was just as important as my own successes. Before that, as I said, I'd be in the classroom flogging off all of my toys and everything was about me, me, me. Mm. And then as I got older, and especially through Women of the Future and through discovering the importance of feminism and tackling these complex issues, you realise that there's such a support system and other people who care about the things that you care about and seeing that you can help others as well as yourself Mm. is probably a really important success for me. And your greatest failure? (laughs) Um, I think my greatest failure is perhaps again something personal to me and my learning is perhaps sometimes I can still be 
not negative, but I can be very harsh and I always want on, on to yourself or on myself and on others. So I'm very much a person who cares and wants to be kind all the time, but it can be really hard and sometimes I find myself being negative or not necessarily being mean, but being perhaps not very nice to the people around me. And I'll say that's the biggest failure of mine is making people not feel great about themselves or showing that you support them and you care about them. Yeah. And then it's about having to go up and say sorry or apologize or be like, I'm really sorry that I made you feel this way. And sometimes that can be the biggest failure is not necessarily, you know, oh, I had this personal setback, but feeling like you've contributed negatively to someone else, mm -hmm. even if it's for a few seconds. You say something mean and you take it back. That's probably my personal biggest failure. But we all have good and bad days, right? Absolutely. You can't be Mother Teresa. Yeah. 24 7. So <laughs> and you are allowed sometimes absolutely. to be selfish and to self care as absolutely. well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't be giving if you of don't course. look after yourself of a course. little bit as well. And it is part of life to make mistakes and to not be nice to everyone all of the time. You can't expect yourself to be a perfect mm. human. But as I said, failure isn't the end of the world. Failure is recognizing that something's gone wrong and working mm. to fixing it. So for me, my biggest failure is probably not being nice to people all of the time. And that's something that definitely I want to work on and back. The mantra of Women of the Future is kindness and collaboration. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you, both personally and professionally? So I'd say that my parents, especially my mum, has always been, you know, they told me about the importance of kindness and picking your battles and learning when it's good to stand up for what you believe in and fight for it. And sometimes when, you know, saying I appreciate your views but can be in a, in a more simple and kind way can be just as important. But for me, when I really realise the importance of kindness and collaboration and how big of an effect it has, because you're always taught to be kind in school but you never realise how important it is until I joined Women of the Future Network and I saw everyone around me being so kind. I saw Pinky connecting me with all these people and learning about everyone, making it that effort. It was about that person from Women of the Future coming up to talk to me when I first went mm -hmm. there. It's about the opportunities that they've opened me to. And for them, it's such a selfless thing. They care about everyone. For me, being then part of the Ambassadors Programme the year after and being able to give that kindness and being able to collaborate with the other members and say, I want to help you. Let me give you this gift of... 10 minutes mm, or your time yeah. exactly time or effort or a connection connecting you with someone I know or that you know and I think that really taught me about how kindness is not just something you do because someone tells you to but it's so rewarding and so impactful as well is there anything that scares you um absolutely I think the first thing that sprung to mind although it's probably not the thing I'm most scared of is definitely failure it's because everyone always sees me or at least I see myself as someone who can do anything and do everything when I fail I the thing I find hardest is to tell my parents because I have a lot of pressure on myself that they don't put on me but I have this pressure on myself that I want to be the perfect daughter and I want them to see me as nothing but amazing and flawless and I, I don't want to seem almost I want to be like a robot you know it's perfect person I don't want to share the humans the feelings and stuff I remember when I tried out for the um, Great Britain ice hockey team, the girls team, and I didn't... You didn't mention that. Uh, <laughs> you were actually pretty darn hot at ice skating. Well, the point hockey. was I didn't get into the Great Britain team. And I remember I was so... I was sad, but I, I expected it. I expected to not get through because it was a very high level and I wasn't ready yet. But I got the email and I didn't tell my parents for like several days or weeks even because I was too scared of not succeeding at something. Now I apply to the summer programme or that award or whatever all the time and I never tell anyone until mm. I get shortlisted because I don't want to say, you know, I've, I've applied and then have to tell them that I failed. Do you still do, you still do that? Do you still worry? Yeah, you still, absolutely. So you still do that so if you, you don't tell everybody when you apply yeah, for things? Yeah, I don't tell anyone when I've applied for something until I've been shortlisted or selected for the programme or something like that. I find it very hard, especially again with my parents, because I don't want to seem like I fail. I want to seem as if though everything that they've taught and done for me has been perfected. I'm an amazing <laughs> ultra human human, you know, which is something that is very hard for me to appear flawed. And especially, you know, 
You're saying this, but you know that that's I know, not actually. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that it's okay to fail, and I always tell the people how important it is. And it doesn't matter, you know what? If you don't get an award or you don't get chosen for a program, so what? There's another one. But it was very hard for me, especially when my friends in my yearbook, you know, they were like, don't be too successful, or <laughs> can't wait to see everything that oh, you so do. Oh, so you think there's a level of expectation? Right? I think there is expectation from me to perform or be good, I've always, you know, had relatively good grades. So if I get a bad grade, everyone finds it hard to say that they've got a bad grade. And this just spreads itself also to other things because you get an award for this and then there's so many pressure on you or you get accepted to this program and it's like, so obviously you should get accepted to this other program. And that's definitely a pressure I put on myself. Mm. But failing or I think what's most important is not seeming like I've got everything together and that I'm not got everything sorted and I'm perfect and I'm a businesswoman but not yet a businesswoman is really hard for me and I think the other thing a lot of the time is this whole thing of being shy comes from people judging me and the fear of people seeing me as less than myself and that ties into failure when I went first went to ice hockey I didn't want to be the person who couldn't ice skate I didn't want to be the person who couldn't play hockey when I go to women of future I don't want to be the person who says something silly or I'm really afraid to go up to a group of people and introduce myself in, in case they say, go away, we don't want to talk to you, which is obviously not the case. Yeah. And you have to start somewhere if you want to be good at ice hockey, and you have to make that conversation if you want to meet people, women of the future. So you can rationalise Absolutely. all of these things. I think that something that um, I was always told is that I know myself very well, and I recognise that I'm wrong in a lot of the irrational thoughts that I have. So I know that people want to talk to me and that I have to start somewhere and that failure is good. And I recognise that, but it's one thing to recognise another thing to work on it. So I guess that's where I am at the moment is... But also that you're not alone in these feelings. Yeah, of course. Like an awful lot of other people have exactly the same sentiments. And, yeah, you shouldn't think of yourself ever as the <laughs> only person that has this sort of, as much as in that moment it seems like yeah, everything is formidable and scary and terrifying no that's really true and I think that's something that's also very commonly attributed to perhaps a working woman is that because they face so much to get to where they are and they're perhaps they're in a man's world quote unquote or they've had to battle sexist stereotypes or racist stereotypes or whatever stereotypes that they've faced they feel like they really have to prove their worth. And it's the proving their worth which, at least for me, makes me scared to fail mm -hmm. because I want to seem like I deserve to be in this position. Or my friends look at me and they say, you've won this award, oh my God. Or you've met John Burke, oh my God. <laughs> and then you're like, well, now I have to be the person they expect me to be. And this is definitely especially true for working women in the workplace or any other minority in the workplace they feel as if they have a pressure to live up to something and so they are scared to not live up to that yeah i think do you always feel like there's two of you like the <laughs> joe who's at home kicking back being a teenage girl and the joe who's pushing going out there wanting to achieve with all your dreams and ambitions or is there some kind of weird hybrid <laughs> in the middle that is both of those two things for sure i think that there are different sides to me but they all make me who i am I think that different friends bring out different sides of us, right? And so for me, being in different places brings out different parts of me too. So at home, I'll sit and read five books in a week or whatever, or I'll go out with friends in the evening. But then when I'm in a networking event or I'm doing something, I'm a more professional, I'm a more mature, older version. And it's important to have people who bring out different sides of you, just the mm. same as different places. But, you know, something that is, uh, at least I struggled with a lot, is in school we have so we're the girls school and there's the neighboring boys school and our people from my girls school would say oh yeah i never really liked you two years ago i just i thought you seemed really bossy and annoying and really full of yourself and then someone else would go to me and say oh yeah all the boys at the other school they don't like you they think you're really annoying and you're always posting on social media about what are you supposed to do, do with that information though? and i'm like you know what first i didn't really need to know that no secondly why? What have I done that is perhaps, why are they feeling this? And then sometimes it's like, oh yeah, you post too much on social media about the things you do. It makes you seem like sh a show off. And you know what? To some degree, I can see that. I can see how always posting about everything can make people seem 
that I'm doing it to gloat or whatever. But equally, it's like these people don't know me and they're making a judgment on me based on someone who they see online. But more than that, it's almost like if someone else posted about something amazing they've done, I'd be the first person to congratulate themselves and be really proud. And something I think we lack, at least maybe in my school level, was that everyone feels that they're competing against each other mm. rather than this feeling of helping each other. Yeah. It's about not taking the room, it's about making room for others. That's something I always say. And that's something I struggled with, was having so many people dislike me or maybe be jealous mm. for me because of the fact that I was being who I wanted to be and I was being successful, I guess. Like, achieving things that I've always wanted to achieve and doing them at my age. And you should never have to apologise for that. Exactly. I was just being myself and trying to be the version of myself that I wanted to be. And sometimes it could be really difficult to have to deal with people not liking you because mm. of that. And that's definitely something that definitely happens as you're older or more in the spotlight is people will dislike you for being you. Absolutely. I have exactly the same thing. I've lost friends and family on social media. Of course, yeah. And you just, it's really hard to it take. Is. And some of it has actually like hit like a bullet. You think, oh, geez, what have I done? Absolutely. And you almost, like I said just to you just now, I don't, I've got to the stage now where I don't feel like I need to apologise mm. for myself anymore because I've spoken to therapists in all honesty and they've said to me, if you check your own moral compass and you're cool with it, then what does it matter? Absolutely. You know, there is so much noise and everyone has an opinion, differing mm-hmm. opinions, about so many different things in life. Just be yourself. If you are absolutely fine with that, then you don't need the reassurance or the likes or the, yeah. you know, the, you know, the retweets or whatever it is, or the shares. Mm-hmm. You just need to be you and the best version of you. And I think that's really hard for people to get grips around because it's something we're so brought up to seek other people's validation mm. and especially for teenagers in the era of social media how many likes do you have? you know my friends get a thousand likes on their posts and i'm yeah. like ah, yeah, exactly. i'm not getting that but you know what good for them i'm happy for them if that's how they seek their happiness then that's great and sometimes i'll be like oh i don't really want to post this and then you have to check yourself you're like yeah. why not and it's the same in other areas about being unafraid to say what you want to say and that's definitely something that I'm learning and it takes time, but something that we have to work on and develop. Being the bigger person. Absolutely. What's next? (laughs) Uh, Not funny story, but a story (laughs) that I always refer back to is, um, I'd say a few months ago, just before I set my A-levels, I had this conversation with my economics teacher. And it was about, I had to miss a lesson the next day to go give a talk at a school. A talk that I'd worked so hard on and had been planning for months. And he goes to me, he says, I don't want you to miss this lesson because your A-levels are coming up. Which, of course, you understand that a teacher wants you to do your best. But I'd never gotten anything but great grades, you know. I was a good student. Mm. And I say, this is important for me. I promise I'll catch up the lesson, etc. And he goes, well, you don't need this talk to add on to your CV. Your CV is already great, you know. You've already sent off your personal statement to university. Why would you ever need to do it? And I think that he missed the point slightly. And this is what is all about me doing stuff next. It is not about adding this talk to my CV or adding something to my personal statement to better myself and my chances to do something. What's important for me about everything that I do is that it resonates with the people that I do it for and that if I've done a talk, it's impactful. If I've gone to a think tank or done something with the government is that they take on board and help to improve the lives of others. If I'm selling a book, it's great that it's part of a business, but more than that, it's because of the person who reads the book. So for me, it's very much what's next is about what can I do to make everyone else's life better. And the motto I always stick by is leave the world in a better place to the one that you found it in. And I very much my biggest goal in life is for my children or my parents or my brother, my friends to be proud of me and the person that I become. So very much what I always aim to do in the future, whatever events I do, anything that I pursue is about making other people proud of me, being proud of myself and leaving behind the world in a place that was better to the way that I found it. And you know, sometimes I'd say like, not necessarily naively, but I guess selfishly, you know, maybe I'll be in history books in a hundred years time. That kind of, importance not because oh I was 
king or I was this really rich whatever because I've made a really important change that everyone has recognised and I've done something great for the world. I'm not sure anyone would ever bet against you. <laughs> thank you so much. It's no, been thank you for pleasure. having me. It's been amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.